Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny, or maybe not so sunny, shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings-on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts, and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. All right, it's another bright sunny, rainy, cloudy. I keep saying bright sunny as if I'm trying to manifest the can weather I want, but it is an, yet another uh, sort of crummy morning <laughs> at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. And I am with a trio of lovely critics to record another episode of our Cannes podcast and run down some of the premieres from the last couple of days, which includes some buzzy titles, let's just say. So I'm going to ask the folks here to introduce themselves. Uh, Ine, you want to go first? Yeah, my name is Ine Prakash. I'm a film programmer and critic, and I run a festival called Prismatic Ground. I'm Beatrice Loiza, and I'm a critic. I'm James Wham, and I'm a critic as well. All right, so I thought the first movie that we should talk about is one that... Is Buzzy not just here, but also uh, back where Beatrice Ine and I uh, come from? Uh, you know, ye old New York City. It's one of the few American indies uh, this year's can. And I am talking about The Sweet East, directed the directorial debut of Sean Price Williams, the cinematographer, uh, written by Nick Pinkerton and starring a whole bunch of people we know. Beatrice, you want to talk about the film tell us a little bit about what the film is you know about sure um so sweet east is kind of like a roving i'm using the word mad love because it's kind of one of these chaotic like stories kind of spill into new stories following the central character um what is the actress's name Uh, talia Ryder, who was in never rarely sometimes always um that's her breakout and and she's sort of this uh just you know, roving woman figure, um, and and anyways, the stories kind of go into new stories. And and earlier I was saying Mad Love because it kind of reminds me of, you know, these sorts of chaotic, um, you know, like John Nemec later stuff and like Zalowski's kind of, you know, just one scenario goes into the next one into mm-hmm. the next one. And but you know, this is specifically her. Uh, kind of traversing the American East Coast um, and its various politics. And so, you know, it starts out in Washington, D.C. It has a sort of Pizzagate scene. um, And then it goes into uh, the sort of white supremacist camp where uh, the heroine meets uh, an intellectual or a white supremacist that's also in academia played by Simon Rex, which is personally my favorite part. I mean, I... I just really uh, admire Simon Rex as a performer, and here he's kind of riffing off of his Red Rocket persona as uh, an older man that is into much younger women. Um, and then it goes to New York City, where she meets uh, these, you know, hotshot directors, and she's cast in this film. And and Jeremy O'Harris is in in that part, and and, and Io Edebiri, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so she becomes a star, and then it, you know ends up in, uh, uh, I guess, like a jihadist camp in Vermont, which is, you know, the, the most, definitely the most prickly of, of the um, stomping grounds or of the, the, the um, parts. But um, yeah, I mean, I, beyond the politics of it, like I, tend to not like these sorts of like chaotic stories kind of spilling into one another but what I do like about this film one is is the performances Holly Ryder I thought was like this had this really great presence and then I think what's apt about her casting is that she's very uh, pointedly 
um, hearkening back to, you know, these sort of Lillian Gish, innocent women figures of, of classic and silent cinema, which is something that's very overtly referenced in this. Like, you know, it has its provocative aspects for sure, but it is also very much like a cinephilic object, like the way that it's transitioning from, you know, part to part. But, you know, in the beginning, it's very much like kind of video arty, Ryan Tricartin, like mania. And then it kind of becomes this, um, uh, like this romance, this lush romance, and then it kind of becomes more indie edgy in New York. And so it's very much traversing these various styles and Talia Ryder as, you know, the pale faced virginal character is, is, you know, rooting all of that, but within a heroine that is, you know, sort of the origin of cinema, which I thought was a quite interesting concept. And I'm kind of a sucker for that. I mean, this is why I like movies like Annette, which is also kind of very much in touch with that you know, contemporary cinema and and sort of uh, overtly um, pointing to its artifice and, and, you know, shifting through genres in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciated that part of it. And some of the dialogue is also pretty funny and, um, yeah, just really an extension, especially of, of the s- screenwriter Pinkerton who does talk like that <laughs> at times. <laughs> yeah. Some in- insider uh, yeah, so yeah, some insider knowledge. Here. But he's a writer yeah. as well. Yeah. For, he was a film critic. So. Exactly. Right, yeah. Nick, Including for film Nick comment. Pinkerton has contributed to film comment. He's a pretty yeah. astounding film critic and has written a book on Goodbye Dragon Inn. And so, yeah, I think you're pretty on point with his, his references being as rich as they are. Um, and his... Um, you know, and Sean Price Williams is a uh, uh, extraordinary cinematographer. So um, it's a it's a real powerful team. That said, I had some reservations about this movie, and and maybe I can get into them. But also, but in the end, I was sort of surprised and um, and liked it as well. With with some um, caveats, I guess. Uh, it it has a great energy. Um, it's sort of this through the looking glass thing, and even the politics. Um, I think I appreciated to a certain extent uh, just the idea that you have this character who's going through all these sort of different uh, American ideological milieus and and has as you know her her goal and what she does very well is just get out clean without getting sucked in by any of them. Um, in each case, people are are show her some kind of kindness or welcome, uh, but what they you know really want is to sleep with her and. Uh, she she manages to take advantage of that um for her own own ends and yeah i think i think it has like a a sort of um validity as a a parable of of the american sort of cultural situation right now um i think i james and i probably liked it a lot less than than you both i do think it's quite funny um, and I also found the performances great, especially Talia Ryder's performance. I mean, I feel like she has a very difficult memo here and she pulls off these various different situations and like, um, you know, like you were describing Beatrice, this kind of very innocent, but also very cunning figure. You know, she's a high schooler when the film starts. She's on a high school st- trip and they, she sort of wanders off during the pizza gate scene and so she has to kind of maintain this yeah this complete almost juvenile ignorance and detachment throughout the film while also kind of fitting into the various scenarios that she finds herself in pretty seamlessly and I thought that she did that really well I think this idea of like she goes into all these different milieu and all of them just want to sleep with her is like one of the film's like consistent provocations. And I found it not very interesting and even like a little bit juvenile, like especially in the Simon Rex sequence. The film is like constantly returning to that provocation of this young nubile woman among these like older predatory men and are will they or won't they, you know. And it just that I did not find that particularly interesting. And I also found it to just be a means of, yeah, a means of provocation that feels kind of dated. And personally, this idea of going through 
different parts of the American political system and sort of like not actually meaningfully engaging with all of them, right? Like they're all sort of parodies. I mean, right. this film was described to me by someone as an equal op opportunity offender, which I think the film is, but I don't think that makes, I think that makes it pretty uninteresting to me. Um, the only part where I felt like the satire really worked and was funny was the sequence with Jeremy O'Harris and Ayo Edebiri because the satire is of like filmmakers and you know what? And like film people in general. And you know, we deserve to be satirized. But I think I had a bad taste in my mouth right from the beginning when the first scene, which we haven't talked about, that the first like community she experiences is she goes to this house where there's like a group of young anarchists or radicals right. and you know they do direct action they're like organizers they're and, like antifa basically yeah they're basically antifa and i'm not saying that those people don't deserve to get mocked and that there aren't the types that the film sort of identifies like really rich kids who that don't know was pretty dated I, yeah, yeah who don't know what they're doing but i found that to be a pretty flat and reactionary trope of like young protesters and so removed from the reality in cities like New York you know I mean I think it really feeds into this idea that the people out on the streets protesting are like rich uh rich white kids who are just like you know having their own little fun when that is just like far from the truth and so the fact that the film started out there and that whole sequence just ended up culminating in like a dumb joke about a pierced penis. Mm. And then the film just sort of like stumbles into this white, you know, white supremacy part. And that part was funny. And I think Simon Rex is a good performer, but I also didn't understand why we were with him for so long. And then the... Like, the pacing of the film felt really weird to me, too. Um, the jihadist part comes at a point by which the film is so tedious, and she spends most of that part, like, locked in a barn. I mean, I don't want to say too much. So there's I, there's just this weird, like... I, I felt like the film sort of favored the white supremacist and the Hollywood portions, you know, to, to kind of flesh out whatever its comedic um, brief was. And the other two really kind of suffer and feel underthought. And they are the two sections that I think should not feel underthought. You're making a parody about, like, Antifa, and you're making a parody about, like, brown Muslim jihadists. Right. And they all, all of these sections culminate in one dumb joke. So with the jihadists, it's like a joke about, like, <laughs> this, like, head guy the the main guy like i don't know making like house music or something and i have to say that was funny like i laughed when that happened and like spoiler i won't describe exactly what happens but you know he just like yeah. randomly he turns out to be like a wannabe dj or something the smell of beats yeah, exactly that did make me laugh but you know it just all felt ultimately so cynical like it all of these just add up to like one or two jokes and I didn't really end up like in a I don't I don't really end up feeling like the film said anything about America. And of course, you can justify it by saying like it's a satire, it's a comedy, it has no it doesn't mean to say anything about America. But then I don't know what is it saying and what is its like real purpose? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it does open with the Pledge of Allegiance, I think, and the high school kids. Uh, and then they go on a school trip to Washington. Is that where they are? And yeah. ends with a shot of an American flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get the American parable thing out of it too much. And I don't think it's an equal opportunity offender. I think like the white supremacist is dealt with in the most tender and intelligent way. <laughs> the anarcho-punk crew were just like, you know, a parody. Yeah. Um, and then they also like try to do direct action and get lost in a park or something. They go to the wrong park and it's like, ho, ho. Oh, yeah. It these fools... I must say, I, I completely agree, but I don't, I actually don't think it's supposed to be like a fiery political statement. I think it's actually all a, it's using, and this is, I guess, the provocation, contemporary politics to make like essentially an aesthetic statement. And like all of these modes to me, they're commentaries on just, um, yeah, just sort of certain decadences, like kinds of decadence and, and how they manifest in like, ideology and and like 
through these sorts of subcultures. And, and I think, I guess, the joke and, and the reason that they kind of remain on Simon Rex's white supremacist part so much is because, you know, maybe that's kind of harkening back to like the, the makers themselves, just like to have such a fascination in like old timey things. Like, <laughs> like they often refer to Talia Ryder's character as like, oh, she's like an old soul or she's got this like, you know, classic look to her. And yeah, I mean, t to me, I actually thought it was, it made sense that it, was in that part so much and it had such a, a sympathy to it because I don't know the provocation is to try to convince you that like essentially uh this white supremacist is essentially like, complicated essentially and that his uh spirit is also just um I mean like kind of D.W. Griffith-esque like misunderstood but like kind of coming from a place of like aesthetic um uh class classicism or just like um a certain kind of romanticism and, and view on the world right so but then the implication is that the that uh brown people and activists are less oh, no, complicated no. Yeah. absolutely <laughs> is that like why yeah. would you not extend that um that well, that's inquiry? about a matter of purview so <laughs> i i led i led with but this is what i think like I, I i don't want to let any filmmakers get away with things just because it's like oh it's that they're that's their purview. I mean, if you're making a film about the American political spectrum and you're having a character traverse like its various areas, then, you know, what you choose to delve more into and which characters you tend to make, uh, you choose to make complex, like says something that is open to us for judgment, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, and I agree with you about the the satire falls short. It's weak. What worked for me is the, actually the pacing did work and the energy of the film and the performances. But I, I think, you know, Beatrice, when you talk about uh, the reflection of themselves, I think that's where the larger context of the film does become relevant. And I, I wonder if we should talk about it or not, or whether it's too New York insular. No, no, no please. Um, <laughs> Get into it's it. It's necessary. <laughs> so I think, you know, the filmmakers are part of a larger community. They include a lot of their friends and longtime collaborators in this film, along with a number, number of other figures who have, have come to be known um, for people outside of New York as uh, they've come to be associated with a, an area known as Dime Square. Um, and, uh, the, the MO kind of seems to be, um, I, which I think is relevant to the movie kind of resisting, um, what they feel to be the leftist pull of, of New York. And even in the press kit, um, Sean Williams has a kind of bizarre, um, uh, piece about, uh, how it's hard to like, he's a true patriot and it's hard to be a patriot and, New York, um, which doesn't, you know, reflect great on the film, depending on what your perspective is. And that's where I start to really have a problem with the movie, because I do think it is connected to their uh, to their perspective and their purview, um, which is that they feel, uh, I guess, uh, in a way, crowded out by what they see as um, a, a liberal tide. Mm hmm. Yeah, Williams also had an interview recently where he said he sort of came out against the unions in New York in the film scene, which was like a weird comment to make, just that they tend to, they tend to disrupt things uh, more than they help, and then sort of alluded to what happened on Rust, the Alec Baldwin film. Right. Yeah. It, it was a bizarre comment and, and totally in line with the kind of pr provocative thing it seems yeah. they like to do, which is, um, you know, it's fine to say you don't want to align yourself with any sort of blanket ideology um but uh i think they make that seem more of a threat than it is i think this context is i i hope someone digs into it again because the subject matter of the film opens itself up you know to inquiries and critiques like this because i i like you were saying in a i mean there is no such thing as like not aligning yourself with any ideology, right? There is no such thing. So if you're saying that you think unions are bad, you are aligning yourself already with a particular politics, right? And that's why 
these kinds of films, which are like, we're going to make fun of everyone, don't fly with me really, because there is no such actual real, like no director or person in the world can have occupy a position where they're like equally detached from everything right, else. Right, they're posing as a neutral party. Exactly. So even even the film as we're discussing is revealing certain slants and bends. And so it just, that, and also I, 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 I don't want to sound very naive, but just feel like where we are in America and the world right now, it just feels deeply cynical to see something like this and not in any meaningful way. You know, of course, you can come away from a film feeling cynical and feeling sad about the state of things. But this is not even a film about like, oh, the state of, you know, the state of things. It's just a film about how everyone is sort of morally vacuous and bad and everything is sort of like, cringe i don't know I, I i don't know if there's any better way of putting it well the, there was a really good piece um in reverse shot by pinkerton um which was all about live streaming and the right wing and sort of related to pizzagate and just like um the post-trump internet reign of trolls basically and he goes really in depth and it's really yeah. interesting and i did feel like it sort of the research he had done for that informed this film a little bit um especially with that opening scene um and I should mention this is the second uh, film of the year, uh, New York film of the year, to s- sort of use Pizzagate as a focal point. Um, so after Soda Jerks, Hello Dankness. Oh, yeah. So I think there, there, this is a moment of sort of beginning to process <laughs> uh, uh, the past few, several years. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I don't know if we want to keep talking about it. I feel like we've gone into it in quite some detail and right. there people are going to be talking about it for a while, but we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Uh, but that's the sweet East, y'all. <laughs> and uh, let's talk about uh, Monster by Hirokazu Koreeda, which was another sort of big title from the last couple of days. Um, went in a bit skeptical because I have not liked Several of his last films. Uh, mm-hmm. He had one in last year's Cannes, Broker, which I really thought was, I mean, actually bad. Um, it was this, uh, you know, this film about adoption that was, and and being like a single mother and unplanned pregnancies that was strangely conservative. Um, and this film, I have to say, is a lot better, but still suffers from some of these late Koreeda uh, sentimentalities and and sort of uh, tendencies towards a slightly conservative, I'm not saying in the political way, like in the cultural way, um, outlook. So this film, I I have to say, it's hard to describe because you don't actually figure out until pretty late in the film what it's about. But basically, it starts out with this um, fifth grader. He's, you know, being raised by a single mother. And he just starts behaving really oddly. And the film also begins with some building that has been set on fire, like a case of arson. That's what that's the image the film begins with and returns to multiple times. Uh, and it's like an important detail. But this kid starts, uh, Minato starts behaving oddly and the mother starts to sort of dig into that. And so the first sort of quarter of the film is her trying to figure out why he's behaving erratically and being really quiet and then saying these like strange things about being a monster, thinking he's a monster, thinking he has a pig's brain. And she believes that he's being uh, mistreated, abused by a school teacher. So that section focuses on her trying to get answers from the school, trying to get the teacher punished. Um, there's other little dramas in the school. You know, the the school principal is dealing with a very grievous loss that has some dubious, the culprit is sort of maybe her. I'm trying to tread as clear of spoilers as I can because what makes the film fun is the fact that you, you know, just like discover things like slowly one by one. Um, And then the second part takes on the point of view of the school teacher, which I don't, I feel like even that's a spoiler because I didn't see the shift in perspective coming at all. And so you'll learn about this 
kids' behavior from another point of view, and it's a whole different series of facts. And then the third uh, part is, I, I don't know if it's a very distinct perspective shift, but ultimately it ends up with the two kids. I mean, then you 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 experience all the events from the two kids, and I say two because eventually another kid who's like this little bullied kid at the school uh, becomes embroiled in this, in Minato's, you know, uh, drama, so to speak. And I don't know how to, like, the monster is homophobia. <laughs> I think, like, I don't know. The film is, I, I, that's where the film kind of ends up. Uh, it doesn't make it super explicit. It's quite, su- like, it's pretty subtle about it, but it does end up being that these kids have this bond that they are not able to fully articulate and are very, uh, you know, Minato is like ashamed by his own desires. Uh, again, big spoiler, I think like arriving at that after these convolutions mm-hmm. is the pleasure of the film. So, um, yeah, I just hope that <laughs> I'm not saying too much, but I don't know how else to talk about the film because ultimately that's what the film is about. And I think structurally it's so well done it's really all the parts stacked together so interestingly each perspective reveals something different the characters none of the characters are bad you know they none of them emerge as like villainous but they all emerge as like they really do emerge as I hate to say it's a cliche but they emerge as really complicated and wounded in in their own ways and that's something Koreeda does really well right just capturing like the everyday wounds that people carry grief abandonment you know resentment guilt but there is also just something so um weirdly simple and sentimental and maybe a little dated about where the film ends up so i'll just say that and james you want to say a little more yeah just that i think my big gripe was with the film was that that structure where things are revealed over three stages from different perspectives uh i don't feel like it really led anywhere that interesting like i it's not in service of anything you know particularly revealing apart from the the plot reveal as you say (laughs) so it's like in service of this plot point yeah but not much else yeah um and then the way it deals with the relationship of the two young boys, I fell prey to cliche quite often. I, I felt like, you know, they ride their bikes, they have a secret little cubby house, things like that. It's a very sweet film and very well made. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. it wasn't, I don't think it's one of his best films. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that Kareda really just appeals to younger generations anymore. Like, I actually do think, to me, the the, you know, homophobic element to me that is straight up a spoiler um (laughs) because you know part of what makes the film work for me is the fact that i don't really you don't get intimation of that in the first two parts at all at all i mean um i was completely in the dark about what was absolutely (laughs) so you know i completely agree i have not liked horeda's recent work it's so precious and sentimental i just like bristle at soft things like i'm i lean to the hard (laughs) um But, you know, I I did like this. I think the last film of his that I liked okay was The Third Murder. Um, And this is kind of similar. And this is, you know, people have been calling it Rashomonster. (laughs) Like Rashomon (laughs) because of like, maybe they're just my roommates. (laughs) People. People. (laughs) The mosses. My particular. (laughs) Right. Um, Because of the, the multiple perspectives. But. You know, what I was very impressed about it was the fact that it, it sets you up to have, like, just a very cynical view of what's going to happen. Like, it sets up Minato uh, story as sort of a we-need-to-talk-about-Kevin figure. And, you know, based on the signs that we initially see, you're like, oh, this is going to have a, you know, dark turn and yeah. it's going to be about that. But, like, it actually just builds up to something entirely different in a very effective way. So, it ex- you know, you expect it to have a cynical ending, but it actually ends up being a much more yeah. complicated and, and, you know, you just feel for everyone at the end. And then I think that is the film's great triumph. Yeah. And I, and I should say, yeah, I, you know, the each section ends on these, like, cliffhangers that are shot in a way that really keep you on your on the edge of your seat for a long time. Like there's a moment where the mother sees something out the window and then that section just ends and you switch mm. perspective. 
And you're like, I was like, did Minato do something awful? Because, yeah, the first section is like, either he's being abused or he is like a cruel bully. And I think the film really does play with our expectations and perspectives really well and kind of makes us think about all these other, you know, sort of darker films and stories we hear about and then ends up somewhere pretty sweet. But I also do have to agree with James that the fact that all that ends up where it does. Oh, God. It's very sweet, but it's also (laughs) strangely anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. it's weird because, I mean, and part of these these subtle shifts is that it does set itself up as more of like a thriller at at first. But then it's nice that it opens itself into more of a human drama, but then that human drama is ultimately, you know, extremely precious. And, you know, at first I was caught by it, but then, you know, by the end I was like, oh, God, Kareta again. (laughs) I didn't see the film, but everything uh, you all are saying about it seems consistent with his last several, which haven't really worked for me. It's it's hard to believe that this is the same filmmaker who started off with Mabarossi and made Nobody Knows and Still Walking, you know? And it's, yeah. yeah it's... And like made like properly perverse films, you know? And <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I had a good, ex- you know, I had a good time watching this one, um, but... I I crave early period Koreeda. He's gone. <laughs> That's how time and age work. Yeah. <laughs> we can't turn back the clock. Do you want to say something about the score? The last score by uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Yeah. And it is very lovely, I must yeah. say. <laughs> it's a lovely score. It is, a, it is a little bit saccharine, but in the right way. In the way but that... It vibes with his whole exactly. aesthetic. <laughs> and it, it, it just comes up... It's used very well, too. I mean, it just comes up at key moments. And there's also a moment where you, there are this sound that you think is diegetic... Is part of the score, but it turns out to be diegetic in a particular scene. Yeah, I thought that was one of my favorite parts. I thought yeah. it was really beautiful. And then, I guess we can't mention it, but the ending, like people have been talking about that as well. In terms of the music? Like, well, no, apparently it's ambivalent as to what happens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is true. I actually did wonder what happens. I mean, we're talking around it too much. Yeah, but yeah. I think, yeah, the music, we, we should give a shout out. Like, you know, it is Sakamoto's last score. It's very well done. And I think it's it supports what is the strength of the film, which is that... It is very well crafted and there's a lot of little very satisfying moments in it, like little things that you catch on to later and uh, very carefully stacked revelations and twists. And yeah, you're right, James. I think the ending is ambivalent in a way that, in a way that is quite moving to think about. Um, But that is Monster. I do want to talk a little bit about a, a, a monster of a film <laughs> that James and I saw yesterday. It's the new uh, documentary by Wang Bing. There are two Wang Bings here. The uh, There's a short one called Man in Black. It's 60 minutes. Uh, we won't talk about that because it hasn't premiered yet. But the film that premiered yesterday was called Youth and then in brackets Spring. Um, a three and a half hour documentary about young workers in privately run garment workshops in uh, in China. I know, James, you're a Wang Bing fan, so why don't you kind of lead us into this? Yeah, um, so I believe it's supposed to be the first part in a series of films. He said he had 1,600 hours of rushes or something, and he filmed for about five years. Um, but only started putting it together during COVID. Um, but it, in a way, it's kind of a continuation of what he was doing with Bitter Money, um, which is also about like these garment um, factories. Um, but I think his idea with, with this film is that it's more region-specific. So it's um, a little bit inland from Shanghai, where the uh, I think it was called one of the Great Silk Capitals or something like that. Um, that's kind of the history of it. And then um, it became a lot poorer, and then in the 70s, it was allowed to open itself up to manufacturing. Mm. And now you have 18,000 privately owned independent uh, factories that pop up. Most of them have less than 20 workers. Um, and they're just churning out children's garments. Yeah. So this little town, um, Jili City, I think it's called, accounts for two-thirds of the children's garments in the country. Um, which is just insane. And when you see the film, they, the all the workers are cranking these these comments out at, a, at an insane pace. I actually- 
actually had to, uh, for a second, I was like, is, it, is this like um, sped up? I was wondering if the film was sped up because they were moving so fast and their limbs, their bodies are moving so fast. It was almost unbelievable to watch. Yeah, and it's all accompanied by this this like horrendous sound of the machines. Like the sewing machines are just cranking as loud as hell. Um, and these guys are like shirt off, cigarette in mouth, like music blaring as they just like throw these garments through. They flip them inside out, stitch the next side, stitch that round, put some elastic in, chuck it on the pile and do it all over again. And it is an incredibly monotonous film. It's very long. It's very arduous because it's it's broken up into kind of like 20 minute sections. He jumps around different factories and different people. Um, true to true to form, he gives you like a little subtitle about who they are, how old they are, and where they're from. They're all from Father Inland. Um, I think it's in Anhui or something like that, um, which is near a river. I want to say Yangzhe or something like that. Um, and so they they come inland. Three hundred thousand workers come inland for the season. It's kind of like a, a school semester. Um, and it's kind of like a school semester in the sense that the factories operate like dormitories. Um, people will sometimes come with their their partner or a child. If the child's old enough to work, they'll stay in the factory um, and work there for the season for a couple months, um, get paid at the end of the labor. Um, and I was reading an interview, apparently they don't know how much they're going to make. They get paid per garment. But until payday comes along, they don't know how much they're going to receive for each garment. Mm. So in the film, you see a lot of them complaining that like certain jackets are really difficult to make really intricate um they have to put mickey mouse on some of them um little patches and god yeah and so then they get together when they realize that that intricate jacket doesn't pay very well and say we want to get more money for this garment how much can we get and it's this strange version of like organized labor um but it's really just people getting together saying we should we deserve more money then going to the boss who also works insanely hard and basically a lot of these workers who stitch the garments go on to buy their own factory um, and the boss says, no, go away. <laughs> like, yeah. um, because they, they don't have a lot of power. I think so many people need work. Uh, the turnover is so high. Um, and you know, you hear the classic refrain, well, we'll just replace you with all the others queuing outside, you know, for a job or the other factories pay even less. Right. I mean, you just hear that it's, um, yeah, I think the film is quite remarkable the more I sit with it. It is, I did find it to be a bit of an endurance test and not because it's, you know, not, it's slow or durational. Like it's, um, every the these locations are so cramped. It is so noisy. It is so dirty. I mean, they live in these like really filthy dormitories and there's, there are many shots of like them clearing out the trash and like throwing it on the street. I mean, it's just very grimy and cramped and um, he captures that very viscerally so I found it quite difficult to be in the film for four hours and there are some very key moments where it goes outdoors that feel like a huge kind of reprieve um, but the I do think the length the rhythm it's all so justified and so intentional you know these are really young people so while they're doing all of this work and negotiating around work they're doing a lot of they're living personal lives you know some of someone is pregnant and trying to decide whether to keep keep the baby someone's trying to get married you know they're all just and they're all just like also having fun with each other and fighting it's just such a spectrum of life being lived in this tiny factory and this tiny dormitory and everything sort of clashing together. And, um, you know, they're all like sleeping in these, in a single room with multiple beds sometimes. And just there is an accumulation to the film that is really, it really reflects the nature and pace of like mass production mm. and like mass production done by, I mean, I'm calling it mass production because they're making hundreds of garments a day. But as James was saying, each factory has like 15 people and they're just cranking it out. They're cranking it out. There's something so dissonant about it, about like these young, I mean, sort of puny, like young people in tiny rooms making, generating this, unbelievable volume and being surrounded by all of just the stuff like there's so much stuff in the film and so I found it very um like just able to convey and evoke 
a particular kind of capitalist production and the kind of life and relationships that generates in such a precise and powerful way. And um, the film does like kind of, me not meander, I think it's too structured for that word, but it kind of sort of loops in and out of like personal narratives. It just kind of follows these these folks and goes in and out of, yeah, their interpersonal um, dynamics, their negotiations with the boss, but it does kind of eventually keep coming back to the question of, pay and like how they can fight to get more pay and it doesn't really there's no resolution it's not like a straight up narrative where they start with a fight and at the end you find out what the result is but it it really feels like they're constantly pushing against this large immovable boulder in trying to you know fight for better wages and the film kind of represents the cyclical like very defeating nature of that but also like the solidarities among the group are very moving. And uh, I think as James was saying, it's like organized labor, but it's not bureaucratic. There's not like a union. There's no leaders. They're just like these young people who are acting on uh, quite simple instincts, you know? I mean, you just they're just having conversations where they're like, well, if we don't all go and say this, then this won't work. Or like, well, if I make this much for making these many garments, you should too. I mean, they're very... Um, their approach to this is just so based on just their relationships with each other as opposed to, you know, there's never talk of any larger ideologies of organization. Um, and yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite moving as well. And I, I have to say, I'm sometimes skeptical of such documentaries where the filmmaker seems really just out of the film, you know? It's handheld and observational, but then when you spend this much time with people, you're obviously interacting with them, right? And when you film them so closely, he films them fighting, having like breakups and makeups. And, um, but he actually is seen in the film multiple times. Sometimes the characters look at him, they tell him like, come film here. And I just loved that he kept in those instances and the film does end with a an inscription where he he's like my great great thanks to all the workers who participated in this film and you know I think I think it's good when documentary filmmakers give us some sense of what their relationship with their subjects was and even in these subtle ways I think um, otherwise it just it often feels like just such a fiction to me you know that you could just be standing outside of all of this just filming all, you know, extremely personal um, and intimate goings on. Yeah, I think that's probably the beauty of the film is the fact that, um, you know, he never tries to impede on what's going on. But because they're young, uh, they like the fact that there's a camera there and they always smile. And they do. There's a line that crops up like a few times where it's like, come film out here. It's it's pretty, you know, let's go outside. Um but you also like because they're young, they're always like messing with each other as well. They like can't stop touching each other, like like friendly fighting. Um, but it does feel very much put on um, for the presence of the camera. But it's in a, like a it's in a very endearing way. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's the that's the new Wang Bing, one of the many long films here. We have a few more to go. <laughs> And uh, there is another film that we want to talk about, maybe uh, to wrap things up, and that is another filmmaker in addition to Wang Bing who has two films at this year's Cannes, and that's uh, The Great Wim Wenders. Uh, he has this um, film that uh, Ine and I saw a couple days ago called Anselm, which is a 3D sort of biopic of the artist Anselm Kiefer, and he has a feature premiering in the coming days called Perfect Days, which we will get to. But in a tell us about Anselm. Yeah, so Anselm is a 3D documentary portrait of the artist Anselm Kiefer. Um, vendors previously um, did a 3D documentary on Pina Bausch, mm -hmm. the dancer. Um, I was uh, really excited for this. I, I actually am a believer in 3d as uh i never stop reminding people close to me um you know i when titanic 3d was re-released i i was there and uh, you know I and i stand by the belief that that's one of the, the the greatest experiences to be had in the cinema and the 3d here is is beautiful and stunningly done and and vendors has talked about how um 
excited he was at the technological leaps that have occurred in the years since he made Pina mm. and being able to do things that weren't possible then, like uh, creating a uh, double camera drone to get certain shots. And the 3D certainly is really accomplished and beautiful. Um, but uh, I, I was a bit disappointed by the film. The The subject matter is, is really heavy. It, um, both vendors and uh, Kiefer grew up in, were born right after World War II um, in Germany and, and grew up in the wreckage uh, of uh, the country at that time. Um, and they've bonded over that. They've been friends for decades. Um, and that comes through really strongly um, in Kiefer's work. It's very uh, um, disturbing in a, in a way. Um, but there's something about the film that doesn't suit the subject matter. To me, it feels like a, or, you know, when I was watching it, it felt like a um, sort of a fashion ad almost. And completely agree. It turns out uh, that the cinematographer, uh, Franz Lustig, who's worked with uh, vendors on the past three films, was before that a, a commercial director for 10 years. And, you know, I, one of their collaborations was a personal commercial. And that's not to say that commercial directors can't also be, or commercial cinematographers can't also be good uh, featured cinematographers. But it just sort of corroborated what I was feeling while watching the film. Um, it's an odd look for the subject matter. Totally. It's just so glossy. Um I think the film just feels very glossy and it. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it does feel like a fashion commercial um, or like one of those artist videos that sometimes, you know, these brands like commission. Right. And it's an odd fit for the subject, which is about how Kiefer was formed by the, you know, the history of the Holocaust, like how his art often even provocatively pushes against um, historical amnesia in Germany. I mean, one of his famous photo series involves him uh, doing, uh, like, the Hail Hitler salute in, like, various locations um, in Germany. So, like, there's there's archival footage of him talking about his approach to art. There is He was very influenced by Martin Heidegger and by Paul Ceylon. So there's um, many excerpts from... Their writings, especially Ceylon's poetry. And um, I mean, the part that really jarred for me is that there are these sequences of Kiefer as a boy, I think played by someone from the Kiefer family. But there is a younger version, like the film has a little boy who's kind of the younger version of Kiefer, and you see him appear in these scenes, like reading Paul Ceylon's poetry or like walking through. Um, walking through like ruined cities or something and so it's you know pointing back to the moment of origin moment of inspiration of of his art it's just so cheesy i don't i don't have anything more smart to say about it it's just so um it tips into hagiography in those moments but also it just i don't think it adds anything to this portrait of kiefer to see like a young boy walking through the city reading paul ceylon you know and so there are just these um yeah just strangely sentimental and also redundant touches to the film also I, you know i don't know if the 3d was very effective it was well done for something like the pina like the pina bausch film that's about movement right this is about mostly two dimensional art you know um and so you do see, I mean, the 3D is used primarily to do some uh, superimpositions, you know, so there are certain like photograph uh, superimposed over like present day locations, like some juxtapositions of archival and present day footage. Um, but also, I think, to capture um, Kiefer's art in maybe a more fleshed out way. But it doesn't really work because, you know, he's he he does have some sculptural elements, too. Right. And um, the canvases are quite textured, too, to be. The canvases yeah. are very textured. He does have sculptures, and some of them are so striking. I mean, they're very, there's one that recurs in the film that is like sort of a bridal uh, figure, but instead of a head, she has a camera. Yeah, and and but I don't really. I mean, my point is like they're static still, and so perceiving them in three D, I mean, it doesn't really add to the experience that much to me. You know, with with movement or with I think three D works best when you have some kind of movement. You know, because um, then there is 
something that invades your space. And here, not really. I didn't, I didn't really gain much from the 3D. And I just found it, yeah, very glossy. So it's very beautiful to look at at times, but it just uh, does not fit the subject matter. And it has all these flourishes, these sort of pandering flourishes that seem so removed even from Kiefer's own stated ideas of art. So... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that jarred me was it seems to sort of, unless I was just tired and not registering this correctly, it seems to sort of lead you to believe that Kiefer's parents died as perhaps victims in the Holocaust before kind of like um, just kind of uh, not very gracefully revealing that uh, his father was in the Wehrmacht. And it's just handled with such a lack of sensitivity. It only emphasizes the... Um, dissonance between the the visual tone and the subject matter. Yeah, and and I, at the series photo series I was referencing, he does the salute wearing his father's Wehrmacht uh, uniform, and so he, he does dig into that. But these elements are like there's such a sentimental and sort of um, I, I just these elements are not really they feel aesthetic, like they feel aestheticized, like all the elements of his biography, all these different, his everything he says about art. Again, like these, um, his uh, uh, past interviews you see on like a little TV screen, you know? So everything feels so arranged and choreographed, like more according to the visual and aesthetic sensibilities rather than the political or even informational, that these sorts of little facts just come at you without proper grounding context and you get swept away just by the music and the movement of the film and these little narratives it builds up um, and these little journeys through space. It's just sort of odd. <laughs> I don't know. I also saw it right after Steve McQueen's Occupied City. <laughs> Horrible double feature. There must also be a truth to, you know, with age, there comes sentimentality with Coreda and Wenders. I haven't liked a Wenders film Probably since Peanut, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm holding my breath a little for perfect days, but if it's Me good, too. it would be a return to form, not. Mm, that's consistent what they always say. The... I'm also holding my breath for uh, Mr. Karasmaki. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, the, really, the major titles of the festival haven't played yet. Yeah. You know, and that's They're why it's true. been a Backloaded. Yeah. So, so far. Yeah. We're... The machine is warming up still. Yeah. We're <laughs> just, just, you know. Uh... Keep on listening. Like I said last time, keep on listening. More to come. All right, guys. I think I'm going to let you go. Release you from this podcasting prison. I have frozen held you chamber. in. This fro Sorry. We're in a, a hotel room. Um, very cold. They're experiencing keeps, keeps us my awake. ideal She did this as a torture mechanism. <laughs> yeah, I think the AC Exactly. I need, to, I need to extract the best insights. Uh, thank you so much, Beatrice, Ine, James. A pleasure. And I'll see you around the crossette. Yes. Thanks for Bye. having us. Thank you. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommon.com.